Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the American Ambulance EMS podcast. I'm Dr. Danielle Campaign, American Ambulance's medical director. I'm here with our fantastic co-hosts, Dr. Patil Armenian and Dr. Sajin Bakta. Hello. Hi, everyone. And we have a special guest with us, Dr. Will Fry, who's one of our residents at UCSF Fresno. Thanks for being with us, Will. Thanks for having me. Today, we're going to be talking about acute mountain sickness. Who serves a million people in the valley? We do. The brave men and women of the double A are the best at what they do in EMS today. The finest place in the world to be is right here as a part of American's family. Help is on the way, got a unit and route. No matter the problem, when in doubt, we send them out. Sure as the sunrise, sure as I bust this rhyme, 10 minutes or less. Every call, every time, this is my career path, this is what I do. The double A's, red, white, and blue. Get your call on. Here comes American. Get your lights on. Here comes American. Get your gurney on. Here comes American. Get your gloves on. Here comes American. Get your save on. So, Will, why don't you tell us about yourself? Sure. Well, I am a Fresno native, grew up in the area, um, started backpacking and spending a lot of time in the mountains from a very young age. My dad took us up there. Uh, and did that through high school. I spent my summers doing trail work up in the Sierras, got into medicine a bit later, kind of towards the end of college when I had to decide what to do with my life. Shadowed my uncle, who's a doc in the ED at St. Agnes, actually, and just fell in love with emergency medicine and uh, kind of set my trajectory that way. I don't know how much more you want to hear Oh, that's perfect. Well, it's nice to see a local boy stay local and work in our emergency departments here. Um, but I hear you have a case to share with us. Why don't you tell us about your case? So we've got a, a middle-aged man who is experiencing shortness of breath while backpacking uh, in the John Muir wilderness. He woke up in the middle of the night with headache, vomiting, and dizziness. Uh, he is not able to walk. He's losing his balance very quickly. He didn't get injured, didn't hit his head. He's got no past medical history, and he's in excellent physical condition, actually does some marathon running. This was his first time backpacking, camping overnight in the mountains uh, with his friends. Once his friends noticed uh, the state he was in, they were able to start hiking him down from the mountain where they met some wilderness rangers on the trail. They were able to get him on horseback out to the trailhead, which was at about 8,000 feet elevation. And in the meantime, they had radioed down and were asking for transport to the hospital. Once the ambulance uh, met the patient and his friends at the trailhead, his symptoms had nearly resolved. He was feeling much better, still a little bit short of breath, uh, and he was already feeling better. And so his friends drove him down to the hospital instead of being transported by ambulance. So, Will, this is your personal case, right? You were one of the friends that were there. Can you tell us about how that felt as a uh, friend watching this happen? And then at what point in your career was this? Did you have all the medical knowledge to know that this was mountain sickness? Or were you younger and didn't have all that knowledge yet? Well, we actually gave him a pretty hard time and um, told him to kind of tough it out and didn't really understand the severity of what was going on. Uh, despite him looking pretty uncomfortable, I think we just thought, this is something you can kind of get over. Uh, when you're up at high elevation, it's pretty common to have some constellation of, of you know, headache or nausea or I didn't sleep well. And so I think we all have a little bit of that. And that's partly why we give him our time, like, come on, man, tough it out. You're going to be all right. 
Um, he was a friend of a friend, so a separate group was with him up at this higher elevation lake, uh, but had come down the trail and we saw them at that point and, you know, gave him a little bit of a hard time. And it wasn't until uh, a couple years later in getting into medicine that I realized that this was probably a pretty serious illness that he was suffering from. So acute mountain sickness is a failure to compensate quickly enough to a change in altitude. Most experts agree that significant risk starts at about 8,000 or 8,200 feet of elevation. Initially, symptoms include mild things, just like Will talked about, headache, fatigue, nausea, poor sleep. But the higher the altitude, the higher the risk of acute mountain sickness and the more potential for severe symptoms. On the severe end of the spectrum, you can have things like cerebral edema, which can cause confusion, ataxia, or ultimately death. It's difficult to estimate the prevalence of this. One study showed that about a quarter of people ascending to 10,700 feet of elevation experience some degree of acute mountain sickness. We can talk about some of the definitions. So the all-encompassing illness is called acute mountain sickness, and there are severe subtypes of this, as we mentioned, high-altitude pulmonary edema, or HAPE, and high-altitude cerebral edema, or HACE. As part of studying this, uh, this disease spectrum, there was a, a scale or a scoring system developed back in the 90s in order to quantify some of these experiences that people have. And so um, it's scaled uh, from zero to three, zero being, you know, no symptom, no severity, and three being, you know, the symptoms incapacitating. So on the scale, we have headache, GI symptoms, nausea, vomiting, really, fatigue and weakness, dizziness or lightheadedness, and then difficulty sleeping, which there's some um, argument as to whether that should be on there or not. But to have acute mountain sickness, the person at least has to have a headache. That's kind of bare minimum. And so if they don't have a headache, it's probably not acute mountain sickness. And then if they've got a headache plus, you know, they get three points in some of those other categories, then they can have that definition of acute mountain sickness. So it's a fairly subjective scoring system, but does kind of help, especially on the research side of things, quantify what's going on. Yeah, let's jump into the pathophys. I always find it fascinating, like what's going on in our body to cause all these symptoms. You could be totally healthy at ground zero, and then all of a sudden you're climbing up, and within a day you're having all these symptoms. Will, you spend a lot of time in the backcountry, and um, let's go through the pathophys of like what's going on in our bodies to cause all these symptoms. Yeah, it's such an interesting disease, and, and like um, Sajin had mentioned, it's really a failure to adapt is where disease comes into play. And so once we ascend to high altitude, anything above 8,000, 8,200 feet, what happens is that the partial pressure of oxygen is lower. There's less atmospheric pressure, and so all the gas components of air are there, uh, but it's like, you know, you've watered down your mountain house. There's just not as much of it there. And so in order to get as much oxygen, um, our body has to work harder. We have to increase our minute ventilation. Um, there's just not as much oxygen in the air that's available. So as we ascend to high altitude, our peripheral chemoreceptors start sensing the hypoxemia, start sensing that our SpO2 is low. And actually, I took a pulse ox with me on one of our uh, backpacking trips this summer, and I wasn't even that high. I was only about 8,000 feet, and I was saturating 91%, 
which uh, if I had saw myself as a patient saturating 91%, that would cause some alarm. And so it was no wonder we were all kind of tired and laying around the campfire and a little bit of headache. Uh, and so in order to maintain a, a decent O2 saturation, we've got to breathe more, we've got to breathe faster. In the blood, oxygen is transported around on hemoglobin. And that process takes a little bit more work uh, than the process of exhaling CO2. And so what happens is as we breathe more to get enough oxygen, we actually lose more CO2 and that kind of delicate balance is disrupted. We end up inducing a respiratory alkalosis as we are in that acute phase of adaptation. So you're getting more basic, you're losing your acid because you're breathing so fast. Exactly. And uh, our bodies have a mechanism to counteract that. At the level of the kidneys, carbonic anhydrase is able to recapture less of that bicarb. And so we essentially pee it out and all is well. Unfortunately, that process takes time to work. And so, you know, you become alkalotic much quicker than you can correct that with a metabolic acidosis. And uh, it really takes about 48 hours. That's going to vary person to person based on kind of your individual chemistry or individual makeup. Uh, but it's really in that 48-hour period of adaptation that we can get into trouble. So that makes sense that uh, symptoms are going to hit you quickly, right? Like with your friend, they're up there for one night. Or if I lived at high altitude, if I lived in Colorado and the Rockies, you get used to this, your body would adjust. You know, you would get some polycythemia, you make more red blood cells, you'd upregulate your various enzymes and so you can get oxygen to your tissues and not feel this way. So let's just go through the spectrum of disease, how acute mountain sickness can be very mild versus very severe. And just kind of let's talk about that. Sure. So, you know, as we're in this state of adaptation, common symptoms are, again, headache, nausea, feeling tired, feeling dizzy. Um, some people will start vomiting, which really doesn't help things. And then on the very severe end of that spectrum, it's possible to develop uh, cerebral edema. And that's where we get this, uh, you know, severe end of the spectrum, high altitude cerebral edema, which is really life-threatening. Uh, and it's a, a, a big issue for people summiting Everest or some of these really high peaks. Uh, not so much, you know, the weekend warrior, but uh, it's a very severe disease entity that can be fatal. And it seems like prevention is key. You know, the idea is let's prevent this before it happens. Um, Patil, you want to take us through prevention? Yeah. So um, prevention is, I mean, the main thing is to kind of acclimate and climb slowly in stages. And other than medications, which we're going to talk about, acclimation is the single most important consideration. It takes our kidneys about 48 hours to fully compensate for the dramatic changes in altitude. Um, and the majority of it happens when somebody's sleeping. And so the faster you climb to altitude and the higher you end up going, the greater your chance is of failing to compensate and starting this vicious cycle. So the current wilderness medicine recommendations are as follows. Give yourself two days to arrive at altitude above 9,800 feet. That could mean spending a night at the trailhead, then spending another night on the trail before going above 9,800 feet. If that's not possible, even just one night at the trailhead will help. And basically, don't ascend more than 1,600 feet of elevation per day. Now, this one is easily broken, um, but if you're worried about getting altitude sickness, then take it slow on your way into camp. If ascending more than 3,200 total feet, give yourself an extra day to acclimate before going higher. 
So let's say you start at 7,000 feet and set up camp at 10,200 feet. Then you need to rest and acclimate for two days, ideally, before going to 11,000 feet, for example. So really time, like don't, don't rush it. I think if you're going to climb higher than that, the idea is to sleep low. So you make this huge ascent at a peak and then you come back down and camp low. Don't ascend the peak and camp up there. Like get back down. Yeah, if your friend is up at the top of Mount Whitney saying, I'm tired, just let me sleep here for the night, don't let him. Right. Take them down with you. Or you could do like they did, my husband's friends did to him, which is put him on a snowboard and make him ride all the way down to the bottom of Mount Shasta instead of, uh, you know, actually helping him hike down. It's one way to get him down fast. He stopped throwing up, though. <laughs> right. They were up there for a snowboarding trip, so we actually had a snowboard with him um, and definitely had to just ride down the entire large mountain to stop his uh, acute mountain sickness from getting worse. Now, medications, though, are key, and that's something that I feel like um, a lot of a lot of young people camping at high altitudes don't know about. But acetazolamide, uh, which is also known as Diamox, is first line for prevention. And the recommendations are to start 24 hours prior to your ascent. And you would do 125 milligrams twice a day for two days until you're at the maximal peak. And this is a carbonic anhydrase inhibitor. So it basically forces you to pour bicarbonate into your urine, counteracting the respiratory alkalosis and thus preventing symptoms of acute um, mountain sickness, including haste and hape. Now, question for you with your toxicology brain. I took acetazolamide when I was hiking Kilimanjaro, but we had lots of tingling in our fingers and numbness. What does that do too? That's probably due to a little bit of hyperventilation, I would say. I thought maybe it was due to the medicine, but obviously not. When I took it, um, it made beer taste terrible. And I don't know why that was, but it was like I could not handle it. And so even uh, any carbonated beverage just tasted really funky. Oh, wow. That's so interesting. Because I think because it also inhibits the carbonic anhydrase in your mouth, in your saliva. So it makes it taste different. Yeah. May not be worth it depending on, you know, the circumstances. But <laughs> Well, everyone responds to mountain sickness differently. So if you know you have a history of it, I think it's worth it. You take it. But if you don't have a history of it and you're not going that high, maybe you don't. But everyone uh, should kind of assess themselves and see if, if you've had mountain sickness already once, your chance of having it again is much higher. Um, so there was a study out of the Journal of Travel Medicine in 2012 looking at acetazolamide prophylaxis. And it showed that acetazolamide was associated with a 48% relative risk reduction compared to placebo uh, for developing acute mountain sickness. And they actually looked at dosing as well, and they concluded that 250 milligrams a day has a similar efficacy to higher doses and maybe has a better side effect profile. And so that's why we recommend um, the 125 milligrams twice a day as we do now. Let's go through dexamethasone. Everybody talks about steroids in acute mountain sickness. Dexamethasone is a second-line medication that can be prescribed. Its dosing is usually 4 milligrams every 6 to 8 hours. This doesn't have a clearly defined mechanism. We know that it may reduce cerebral edema in other illnesses. And so we tend to think that it can reduce cerebral edema in a similar way in this disease, but it really doesn't have an effect on the physiologic parameters that cause mountain sickness, such as oxygenation or acid-base status or fluid balance. 
it does reduce symptoms, but doesn't necessarily treat the underlying etiology of why you're feeling sick. So there was a landmark study in 1989 in the New England Journal of Medicine looked at dexamethasone in acute mountain sickness, and they found that symptoms were reduced by 63%, but again, it has no effect on oxygenation or sleep apnea or fluid shifts. And really what they concluded was that although it reduces the symptoms, it doesn't treat the underlying physiologic abnormalities. So it's best to use dexamethasone in combination with descent as the the definitive treatment for acute mountain sickness. So a lot of people talk about using preventative Tylenol or preventative ibuprofen. Any literature on that? Yeah, so there was a a double-blind randomized trial looking at Tylenol and ibuprofen for prevention specifically. Um, They looked at this on Mount Everest base camp, and what they found was that 22% of the patients receiving Tylenol and 16% of the patients receiving ibuprofen developed acute mountain sickness regardless. But that was essentially 14% lower than what was expected, what's kind of known to occur at that altitude. And so it did seem to have a pretty significant benefit for patients who are taking it. And again, I don't think we have a, a good mechanism or a clear pathway for that. Maybe it's reducing some of the symptoms enough that they don't score very high on that Lake Louise score. But in any case, it seems to help. And it's nice that both of them work. So you can take Tylenol or ibuprofen. So let's start talking about treatment. Really, we're going to focus on treating the symptoms, beginning with stopping and resting where you are. Maximize your oxygenation, stop exerting yourself, drink water, do not go any higher for at least 24 to 48 hours. You can take ibuprofen for a headache or Tylenol. Um, If you feel sick, you can take an anti-nausea medicine such as Zofran. Uh, Make sure you're hydrating very well. And try to avoid things like smoking or drinking alcohol or strenuous exercise. Let your body rest and adapt. And for mild sickness, if you are feeling better in about 24 to 48 hours, you can continue with the rest of your trek. When it comes to treating moderate sickness, uh, I think a good question is what constitutes moderate sickness? And I can say from experience, if you are moderately sick, you do not want to stay up there anymore. You're not having a good time uh, and you probably want to leave So in general, uh, you want to descend an elevation at least 1,000 feet. Um, Say you descend 1,000 feet, but you still don't feel, you know, you're still not feeling well after a few hours. Uh, Keep going down and maybe just kind of leave the backcountry altogether. Now, there is some evidence that dexamethasone can improve cerebral edema once it starts developing uh, and kind of uh, improve some of the severe symptoms Uh, once things have already gotten rolling, acetazolamide is probably not going to help you uh, once the symptoms are there. It's just too slow of a mechanism. And then I like to talk about the gamma bag. So I know some of our um, Sequoia and Kings Canyon National Park, some of our high park systems have a gamma bag. And so this is basically a portable hyperbaric chamber, and it's inflated with a foot pump. So it looks like a sleeping bag and the person gets put in there and it pressurizes the air and kind of simulates a lower altitude. It can simulate up to 9,000 feet lower. This helps increase the partial pressure of oxygen and improve your oxygenation. Um, Studies in the literature since the 1990s are almost all case reports documenting its effectiveness in the treatment of haste and hape. 
Um, these are actually really neat to see, and some of our park rangers we've engaged with have shown them. I feel like though it's manual, though. So if you think about it, that poor ranger has put you in there and you're sick, and that's usually because they can't descend. It's in the middle of the night. The helicopter can't come get you, but they have to do a foot pump for the whole night to keep that pressure up. And so it's definitely dedication by the EMS crews to keep the sick people doing well when they're in that gamma bag. You know, it's light enough. It's about 15 pounds. They kind of carry it to the site, use it until they can get the patient out. Let's talk about protocols, Patio. So here in our Central California EMS agency, we don't have a specific protocol, um, but I'm sure many people listening um, that are living at higher altitude um, areas do have a a mountain sickness protocol in their area. Um, Just looking around, it looks like there are several counties in the U.S., especially in Colorado, that have high-altitude illness protocols. For example, in Mesa County in Colorado, in their protocol, the goals are really to get the person down as fast as possible, which we already talked about, Um, focus on the ABCs, try to get a complete history, Um, especially think about past medical history, because sometimes you think something is acute mountain sickness, but it's an exacerbation of an illness that they already have. And then get get the history of the rate of ascent, prior altitude illness, rapidity of symptom onset, place an IV in, put them on a cardiac monitor, and then really the rest of it is going to depend on what is the primary presenting symptom. So if it's acute mountain sickness and uh, most of it is you know, nausea or vomiting, then they recommend undansetron and uh, 20 cc per kilo normal saline bolus. If it's more of the hape or the pulmonary edema, then you're going to be focusing on giving them oxygen, assisting ventilations as needed, considering CPAP. And if it's more of a, they're really altered, so you think it's more of a cerebral edema, then again, descent is key, oxygen, you know, assess need for airway protection. So that's just a sample of one protocol in the country, but, you know, most of the goals are getting that patient down from altitude and then giving them fluids and oxygen and symptomatic control. Let's go to our take-home points. What do we want people listening to remember? Will? Yeah, I think it's important to remember that unless you're at pretty high altitude, it's probably not mountain sickness. Um, It takes an altitude of at you know, 8,000, 8,200 to really develop symptoms. And usually it's a bit higher than that before people start feeling sick. Sajin. So if you are climbing, remember to climb as slow as possible. Take a day or up to 48 hours to acclimate to your position before climbing any higher. Patio. I think before you even go on a trip like this, consider getting acetazolamide uh, for prevention. My take-home point is if you yourself have severe acute mountain sickness or your friend in your group does, just remember descent is really the only treatment. And uh, below 4,000 feet, if possible, if you're not able to get out there, you hope um, when you call EMS that they bring a gamo bag um, to help you. Thanks, everyone. Thank you. Thanks. Thanks. If you guys like the American Ambulance EMS podcast and you feel like this has been useful for you, please give us a five-star review on the iTunes store so that we can move up in the ratings so that uh, other uh, pre-hospital professionals can listen to us as well. Um, And we're also taking any solicitations for ideas or, or topics that you want covered, and you can email us anytime at podcast at americanambulance.com. Once again, that's podcast at americanambulance.com. Thanks. 
Thank you for joining us on the American Ambulance EMS podcast, produced by American Ambulance in Fresno, California. The views of the guests and the hosts of this show are their own and don't necessarily reflect the views of American Ambulance or UCSF Fresno. The theme song for the show is written and performed by Roshan Roach. The beats were created by Young Pear and Brett Schoenwald. And I'm John Mark Bergen, American Ambulance's media producer, saying thanks for joining us. Have a great shift and stay safe out there.